Betty White, not dead yet. In honor of Robert Duvall in The Judge, which living legend are you hoping can still pull out one last great performance? I'm Katie Rich, and we're still pulling for Gene Hackman, right? So we can forget that Welcome to Mooseport ever happened? Hey, it's me, David the Seven. Han Solo. I mean Harrison Ford, but considering all the Han Solo magic was transferred to Indiana Jones between Empire and Jedi, and recent Ford has been mild Ford, let's say Han Solo. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm obviously going to go with Angela Lansbury, who I believe just celebrated her 89th birthday. And I'm sad that she didn't get to, uh, that she bowed out of the Grand Budapest Hotel. But maybe bed knobs and broomsticks, too? And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with Albert Finney, if only because I love his voice, and I uh, cannot stand the thought that when he dies, all the clip packages are going to be all up in Big Fish's grill. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 43 for Tuesday, October 7th, 2014. Before we get started, David, I believe we have some especially amusing and excellent reviews to read. We do. The great, is David worthless or invaluable (laughs) debates rage on. First, do we get to vote uh, or no, the, uh, only, the only the listeners the oh. get to vote? Uh, they get to vote with my their stars. Um, we have four new reviews. The first is trash. It says four stars. Did I just listen to an entire podcast debating what trash men as applied to cinema with no mention of showgirls? Trash cinema equals showgirls. <laughs> now I'm even more excited to see Gone Girl. Have a nice day. Then we have Sweet Jane 13 who says, less David, please. I don't know why you all let David talk so much. He is snobby and insufferable. I would not ever listen to him alone, but Katie, Dave, and Joanna make the podcast enjoyable. Please, what? please, less David and more of everyone else. I'm on the show. You're included no. in Last everyone else. Me. You're neutral. Then we have a great show by C. Falco who says, I love the show. The four original members have quickly become the movie podcast equivalent of which sex in the city girl are you? I think I'm somewhere between a David and a Katie. And Joanna is, of course, a welcome addition to the show. I also want to address the many listeners who don't like David Ehrlich. They're wrong. David's opinions are the best thing about the show. Thanks, Mom. P.S. I love Matt Patches, but I feel like there's been too many times that he's talked over someone and I haven't been able to listen to what the other person had to say. One out of one listeners found this review helpful. (laughs) <laughs> the best by good good not great says the only film podcast i'll listen to solely because the fantastic personalities of katie matt Dave seven and wait for it in all capital letters david when is david gonna get his own reality show on bravo <laughs> well i don't want to break any embargoes but sooner than you think <laughs> anyway uh, if you'd New like to leave a review that loves, season. hates me, or actually just talks about anyone else, uh, yes, please find us on iTunes. We love your reviews. They are our best conduit to find new viewers, or listeners rather, uh, and we will read them on the show, whether they be good or bad. Thank you. And we'll be highly amused if you forget one of us, because that seems to be a trend. Uh, and then we'll take it personally.
Uh, one of the week's releases that we won't be reviewing on uh, Friday's episode is The Judge, starring uh, two Robert D's, Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> and Robert Duvall. <laughs> that is something <laughs> we that both love came that. up with that had never occurred to me. Um, it, uh, I haven't seen oh. it. Patches, you are the one person who's seen it, and you are an ardent defender of it. But it looks, I mean, you look at the trailer for this movie, and it looks like something that uh, Touchstone forgot to release in the late 90s. It seems like a major throwback, and maybe the least interesting thing that Robert Downey Jr. could do when, you know, Robert Downey Jr. acts only when he feels like it because he makes $50 million just for, like, putting his head in the Iron Man suit. And I can't quite figure out why this was the thing that he's doing when it seems kind of milquetoast and not really that interesting compared to some other roles that he's played. So... Patches, tell me why I'm wrong, and tell me if it's actually, you know, promise of Robert Downey Jr.'s great performances to come post-Iron Man. Um, well, those are two different questions. Uh, <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. could definitely continue to make movies like The Judge and see serious failure in the future. I don't really know where Robert Downey Jr. goes from The Judge, because, as you mentioned, The Judge seems kind of like a fluke, right? It's this shiny studio movie that should have been made 20 years ago but for some reason it's happening now and it's like two and a half hours long and who, who is this movie for actually i take that back because i was at the theater seeing gone girl a second time this weekend and and a uh, trailer for the judge played and a couple next to me an older couple said look a movie for the uh, movie for us or something like that. <laughs> really yeah <laughs> and i'm like why just because <laughs> Just because older really, people are you engaged with them. No, yeah, I turned. Why would you want to see the judge? <laughs> this has all the believability of like a stand-up. It's like the other day on my way over here. I uh... let me email you my review. Um, <laughs> although that would persuade them because I actually enjoy this movie. Uh, our colleague Drew McQueenie of HitFix and I, we, we sat next to each other and we walked out of this movie. And I'm like, you know what? That wasn't too bad. And Drew said, this is this is the worst movie. Everyone should be embarrassed. This is offensive to the craft. Uh, and I'm, I'm not quoting him uh, verbatim here, but you can read his review, which I believe is a, is a huge pan. Um, but I dug it. I, I really was on board with kind of the sentimental vibe that uh, David Dobkin is kind of pushing here. It's a very shiny movie. Uh, oh God, what is Steven Spielberg's DP? Uh, Janusz Kaminski. Janusz Kaminski. Kaminski shot Janusz. this movie. So all the windows are overblown and everything is, is shiny and slick. Um, and the, the, the dramatic arc here is interesting. I have to admit that I obviously am into kind of procedurals and courtroom dramas, and this is very much of the verdict ilk, this kind of like cookie cutter script. Uh, you know all the beats that are coming, but if the performers are good enough, it's like, you know, watching a stage show. You know everything that's going to happen. It's all telegraphed, but these guys are good enough. Robert Downey Jr. is a good actor, uh, and he can perform. He can be charming and not always, um, you know, in, in, in the Iron Man films, he always has the right words, and that's not necessarily the case in The Judge. He's a smartass, but he's not the genius in the room, necessarily. He hasn't figured everything out, and... I think that's why it works. I think that he has some really hard-hitting scenes with Robert Duvall. There's one scene where, I mean, Robert, not only is Robert Duvall being accused of murdering somebody, vehicular homicide, and that's what Robert Downey Jr.'s character is defending, um, but he's kind of losing his health, and he's, he's going to die. So all of this is kind of cascading at once, and Robert Downey Jr. has to take care of him, and there's some surprisingly raw moments in this in this script and this movie where 
Robert, Robert Duvall shitting himself, and and Robert Downey Jr. has to like carry him across a room while he's shitting, and it's disgusting, it's disturbing, it's like a more, um, and and it hits you hard. But then there's very Hollywood moments where they have an argument during a tornado, and it's like, well, that's pretty obvious uh, if you want to really increase the momentum. Is the, tor- of this is thing. the real tornado their feelings? Yeah, exactly. They they conjured it by arguing. <laughs> suddenly, there's a tornado. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot to like to this movie. I, it's bloated in with Hollywood notes. There's uh, Vera Farmiga plays this kind of love interest, and she has absolutely no purpose in the movie other than maybe Robert Downey Jr. should have a leading lady in this film. Um, this movie is very much about the patriarchy and, and this all the men of this family, and she has no purpose in it. Unfortunately, you wish there could be a, a an important character in this movie. Maybe one of the lawyers instead of Billy Bob Thornton. You could actually have a woman lawyer. Uh, grilling Robert Duvall but no it all has to be men and then a side character who is really pointless but uh, I dug it and but I don't know after watching this movie this is not an Oscar caliber film it's just kind of like a feel-good movie Uh, but I don't really know where he goes from here I think he's Angelina Jolieing in a way he's too big for the screen there's nothing that really there's nothing he can do and I saw an interview with him they just had an academy screening of the judge where Robert Downey Jr. told whoever was interviewing them that he likes epic arcs. That's his quote. And I'm just like, there's no mov- there aren't movies that fit that unless you're doing Sherlock Holmes 3 or Iron Man 4 or like The Judge is that rare film, and I don't think this will come around for him again. See, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, like outs- he's- oh, let's, ahead, let's pretend I don't think The Judge is good. I mean, let's pretend I don't think The Judge is good. And in terms of Robert Downey Jr.'s career, it seems like he's made for like these little quirky action movies like Johnny Depp settled into doing quirky interpretations for like children and teenagers. I don't I don't think it's necessarily the best thing he's capable of, but I think it's definitely where his profits lie and where like most of his future projects lie if he's lucky. But is there an event horizon? Can he not go back to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Is an are Well, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was the, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is the same character as Sherlock Holmes and Tony Stark, like in terms of Robert Downey Jr.'s portrayal of like the you know bumbling, charming, uh, talkative guy that's you know kind of more intelligent than you take him for there's no chaplain what, again for robert Downey Jr. exactly that, that might not be a good too movie, far back but... <laughs> well but, but i mean that's sort of like experimenting as an actor he's like found a groove and he should really stick to it but then again i'm not gonna like fault him because i'm not an actor and i would do anything robert duvall was like also involved in just because i don't know i guess i also want him to be my dad it seems like a great a great thing that you could also have with your profession but it doesn't surprise me that i don't know is lukewarm and sappy it just seems like he's going after the easy money like he like acting is you know hard to some degree that he's not willing to do anymore and you know even if he can't do chaplain anymore like i agree that there's like some way in that you know you can't do the roles you are when you're an upstart young actor you can't you know, become another iconic character, probably, although he's also in Sherlock Holmes. But, like, he's got Zodiac in him. Like, that wasn't that long ago. Like, why couldn't he, like, why not, like, work Yeah, but with he hated that. Or, Fincher like, destroyed him on that movie. Well, I mean, like, okay, do an interesting movie that isn't with someone like Fincher who's going to kick your ass. Like, 
you know, obviously he doesn't have to beat himself up in that way anymore. But it does seem like, you know, he could work with anybody. He has the power to get any movie made right now. But and he's the judge so just feels boring. like a waste of that potential. <laughs> I'm just like, I, I'm gauging this by my just lack of interest in engaging in this conversation that I'm realizing in real Thanks, time. David. I also, no, no, I mean, I, not that you guys aren't making interesting points, but I just am feeling not at all compelled to comment on Robert Denny Jr. beyond the fact that I am right now. And it's because uh, I just, I can't think of a more boring You don't think he's ever right made now. a good movie? No, not, it's, I'm not saying that at all. I think that he's been in several good movies and given interesting, well, some good performances in them. Uh, I loved Kiss Kiss Bang Bang uh, recently, and I think Zodiac is phenomenal, and he's perfect for the part. But I just, I feel like he is, uh, especially since Iron Man, has sort of calcified into this one thing. And even just watching the brief snippets of the judge that I saw in trailers and uh, in TV commercials, it, it, I just, I can't, I, I just find him so But isn't that what these golden boring, age you know? actors did? Like they found their type and they kind of drilled it into all these he different. Doesn't, he mean, doesn't seem to have the sort of uh, nuance and wiggle room that they did. And perhaps it's because his type is predicated on a, uh, sort of acidic sarcasm that didn't really exist in the in the movies in this pronounced way back then right it doesn't and help it, that it he's just, a cynic at heart yeah I, I don't i don't want to assume that about him necessarily but there's just it doesn't not all that much room to play in these characters and also when you're thinking about those stars i mean uh, of course none of them hit a home run every time they went up the plate but uh they were aiming a lot higher than he is and uh they didn't have uh, Iron Man's two and three and four, just to to reaffirm that image in the smallest possible way every few years, and uh, I'm just I just find him so incredibly boring right now. I, I don't care about anything he has to say. I don't care about anything he happens to be in, uh, and I will continue to feel that way until hopefully, fingers crossed, he proves me embarrassingly wrong. But uh, we'll see. Yeah, that was my main complaint. Just that I mean I don't find him that boring i think he still has a ton of potential to do interesting things but for the moment he doesn't seem to be interested in doing so which is really frustrating but that's what uh, that's what i'd argue about the judge or go to bat for it a little bit i mean it doesn't have to be a lars von trier movie to be risky and dramatic right i mean this can be by the book in a way and the craft can be there and the energy can be there to make it watchable and entertaining and watching him as a lawyer really works like that's a good part for him because he can you know uh, rattle off the facts or, or charm the the jury or or he can have uh, what i think he's really good at is these kind of like breakdown moments and you see it in iron man 2 or not iron man 2 iron man t-o-o -O, yeah. um where he you know he he's just having a breakdown these kind of like teary-eyed classic melodrama breakdowns and i mean they're all over the judge when he's like arguing with robert duvall and like you couldn't be a father you were never a father and vincent d'onofrio is there he's the real support system of the judge um this kind of just real blue collar guy uh and then you have someone who is heightened and above real life like robert downey jr being cracked and and trying to be bring him back down to 80s robert downey jr when during the john hughes days right trying to be more of a natural just human being and that's what the judge is all about kind of 
um, unmasking him from his Iron Man days in a way. So I, I think maybe this is going to set him on the right track. But then I know that his wife produced this movie. I remember being on a Sherlock Holmes red carpet once, one of my very few red carpet experiences, talking to them and like, you get the sense, the immediate sense that she's in control, right? He's never going to do something that's not a blockbuster. I swear to God, I don't remember what happened on that red carpet, but I swear that. she said that before, that he would never do a movie that's not like a huge blockbuster anymore. And you know that she's just like helping keep him on track. And maybe part of that is so that he doesn't do mass amounts of drugs and go back to his like 90s life. But who knows? <laughs> the judge. See it this weekend. Judge it. You are like you sounded like the like oldest young person on this podcast. <laughs> I am the oldest part. young person. This it's just a really good classic melodrama about a guy who's trying to raise his father and their lawyers. Take the family. Wow, good lawyering. I could buy it. I could have played the judge. Y'all want to give a special shout out to DJ Drama? Let me do this. I really appreciate it. Hey, go DJ. That's my DJ. Hey, go DJ. That's my DJ. Hey, go DJ. Can hear advice from the New York Film Festival over the weekend. It is the new film from Paul Thomas Anderson, whose last film was The Master, who previously made There Will Be Blood. You know who Paul Thomas Anderson is. It has a bajillion people in it. I don't know that I've seen a more elaborate kind of surprising cast in a movie in quite a while. Um, it comes out in, well, it stars Joaquin Phoenix is probably the important thing to know. It comes out in December, so we don't want to do a proper review right now, but because uh, Patches and David and I were all there bright and early on Saturday morning for the uh, press screening, we figured we'd give some kind of, uh, you know, brief hits on it, like what you should look for, what you should think about this movie going up to its release. So, uh Patches, I kind of want to start with you because I'm a little, like, I've, I've heard David talking about it, but I'm a little more fuzzy on what you think of it. What's kind of your quick hit version of is Inherent Vice worth paying attention to before it's released in December? I mean, it's clearly uh, worth paying attention to. I think that people, you know, a lot of people were joking afterward about how Whenever we see these festival movies, the conversation automatically turns to Oscars, which is true because a lot of people like to frame their conversation that way. And, and Inherent Vice is immediately on people's radar. It's like, it's not an Oscar movie. It's out of contention. Um, and I was talking to one of our one of our writer colleagues who remain nameless, but she was just like, it's over. Who, why would a studio put this movie out? And I'm like, why would a studio put this out movie out? Because it probably didn't cost that much. And why not? Like, why not take a gamble? Like, we should be applauding the fact that Warner Brothers is putting out this incredibly strange movie that probably cost less than $20 million to make. No, it, it, I think it costs between 20 and 30 Okay. Um, but has a shit ton of people in it um, and could recoup some money. Like, let's see if there's business in the art house. You know, can you make a blockbuster? Certainly Wes Anderson has started to figure that out, that it's possible. Um, and so I, I don't really understand why you would, like, take aim at Warner Brothers for putting this movie out. Uh, it's... I feel like that's uh, that's almost the least interesting thing to talk about with it because like God love them for taking the gamble. So like yeah, you know, also it... it has the benefit of hindsight. I mean, I think that uh, you know these Wes Anderson movies are <laughs> you know you can you can see them 
uh, before they've been hit and, and right. just uh, sort of reflect on like how is this gonna how is this gonna make money and you know, just because everybody Here, loves it it's a very different vibe and I think it's easy now two months before the movie comes out to here's my to gut reaction in that regard here's but. my gut reaction that people can keep in mind for inherent vice I walked out of the movie being like I don't know what I just saw like I was really it's this kaleidoscopic stoner detective story and at first I'm, I was you know, my immediate reaction was just like, okay, this is good, I guess, question marks, lots of question marks. And even 20 minutes later, walking out of the theater, I already felt like the, the I'm coming down from the confused high and going into the full-fledged stone. Like, I'm already enjoying this movie more <laughs> just thinking about it. And I expect upon multiple viewings and more distance from it that I'm going to like it more and more. I had the same reaction to The Master and I expect similar feelings. But I, I think that the uh, that sensation, which I echo 100%, I mean, I really enjoyed the movie. Uh, I knew that when it ended, but uh, it has continued to blossom and improve for me in the days since. Uh, I think it's a different sensation from The Master, which is dense uh, and sort of opaque in a, in a different way. I mean, this is classic noir in, in the vein of The Big Sleep, uh, even if it has more of the attitude of something like the long goodbye, the long goodbye, but it's uh, it, it it is impenetrable almost by design. Uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson was saying after the screening that he uh, <laughs> he barely cares if you can make right. I mean, like, and this is not the kind. I think that like that's part of the thing that the first time through, even if you repeat to yourself as a mantra, uh, not to bother trying to connect the dots to you know intricately it's sort of human nature i feel like it's a bit inevitable um and there's a burden that comes along with it that can that can uh distance you from sort of the real things you're supposed to be attention be paying attention to and there's a lot of really fascinating things happening under the surface between the characters how they're reflecting one another and acting as foils and sort of emotional currents and generational and epoch related things that are happening um and and there's a lot of just beautiful cinema in there as well even if it's a little bit more uh perhaps because of budgetary reasons restrained than people might be used to when it comes to Paul Thomas Anderson. There's a reliance on uh, two shots and long push-ins that, uh, it, uh, you know, it's not quite as elaborate as other films. But not to turn this into a full review, but I do think that um, it will warrant and reward repeated viewings. Uh, and I think the fact that the word has really gotten out about that is going to help prime people to be in the right headspace when they see it. I want to just quickly echo what Pat just said about kind of getting out of it, not knowing what you've seen, and then letting it settle in a while longer, and that being a really similar feeling to The Master, and also really different. The hugest difference for me in that is that while you're watching Inherent Vice, it's really fun to watch. It's funny. It's entertaining. There's a lot of individual scenes, and even if you can't figure out what they mean, they're fun to watch while you're in them, whereas The Master kind of really bored into your soul and felt very grim even while you were watching it. Um, so I really look forward to seeing Inherent Vice again, and I look forward to taking people to see it in a way that I wouldn't have the master. So that part's really exciting, and it'll be really fun and you know, maybe even more confusing to talk about come December. time to check in again on the gimmicks that people are using to try to get you to go to movie theaters which nobody wants to do anymore because tv is great and everything's on vod um 
Inherent Vice, which we just talked about, which was at the New York Film Festival playing in 35 millimeter, is on film, which is one of the few things that is ever shot on film anymore. And it was screening the same week that Christopher Nolan made a big deal out of 70 millimeter screenings of Interstellar, which is coming out in November. Uh, Interstellar obviously is more of a movie that people are going to run out and want to see opening night. And I kind of instinctively saw that and thought, oh, 70 millimeter is the new 3D to try and make it worth it for people to come to theaters. To me, that kind of has better staying power and a better argument as something that's worth going to see in theaters. But I don't know if that's just because I'm the kind of film nerd who cares about these things, period. Do you guys buy the 70 millimeter thing, first of all, to start this conversation? Do I buy it? Like, you buy it not as, like, something that's worthwhile. Like, we've, you know, we've all seen 70 millimeter films. It's beautiful. But, like, but do, you think, do you think that it's becoming the next ploy, and do you think it will work? No and yes. I, no, I don't Wait, know. How I, could I, it be I, no I, and yes? Well, yeah, I, don't, I, I don't think that – because Christopher Nolan is not operating in the same sphere as, as anyone else. I mean, you can barely get – you know, other people to strike prints or, or shoot on film, and Christopher Nolan. Yeah, someone ask Alex wants. Ross Perry if he's uh, getting thirty-five well, millimeter prints of. Uh, right, and he Philip shoots made. on film. I know so, he does, but are yeah, they making prints so of that uh, film that's going straight to VOD? <laughs> I, I think you just you just can't take whatever Christopher Nolan is doing and apply it to any other filmmakers, um, let alone the. Well, you can apply it to any other filmmakers who are able to work on a big budget, like. Anyone who has, who gets a ton of movie, I mean, if Michael Bay wanted to make a 70 millimeter movie, he could easily do it. Go to Call kind of falls into this. It's pushing it in that direction where the way it's being projected is, is an important selling point, and you could see how film would grow out of that, the whole IMAX thing. I, mm-hmm. I guess the answer to your question is I do not see anyone, Christopher Nolan included, really making, uh, having 70 millimeter be the sort of draw that 3D has been. Commercially, I think that, you know, people of a certain type will seek out the 70 millimeter experience also because it's IMAX and it's going to be a different visceral experience besides just the higher resolution images that come with shooting on bigger film stock. Um, but no, I, I think that this is not uh, going to be telling one way or the other. I was surprised. I wrote something recently about this on HitFix and um, I was surprised that a lot of commenters were like, can we get over Nolan's fascination with film already? Like... This guy's living in the past. Just embrace digital. It's only digital's only getting better. Why are we so stuck in this mode that uh, it's suddenly it's it's better for some reason just because it's the old fashioned way? And um, I mean, I don't I don't know if I could disagree with that necessarily, but I I obviously want to see film. Pr- Every time I see a film print, I'm I'm awestruck because it really does look different. And I don't know if there's anyone out there to appreciate that. The core audience is skewing younger, right? Or it always has, and uh, these younger people don't really know why they should appreciate that. Um, mm, I think that's a that's a false base for that argument, because for so long already we've been sending out our mass media in lesser formats. I don't think that the average moviegoer can tell something that was shot on a large format film versus something that's just blown up to be shown on a large screen necessarily, especially when you add in something like 3D or a 3D large format screen or a LIMAX, if you will, those IMAX screens that aren't actually the gigantic ones. I, I don't think that people know the texture of film and i don't think that's because of lack of it i think it's just because we started getting blockbusters 
on film that had to have certain parts that were digital and then those two lines got closer and closer together and now it's just cheaper to shoot so it's just all the product they're seeing unless they go and seek out a master or an interstellar they might not know the textural difference anymore i'm trying to remember the time when i was seeing enough movies in theaters where it would have been mixed where i would have been watching like a 35 millimeter print one day and then the next week i would have seen some sort of dcp digital projection or was it it seems like it was overnight almost back when james cameron was urging all these theaters to convert for avatar um and you know this whole advent with phantom menace and all these test screenings about yeah converting to digital and oh it looks so amazing but that it never really took off then no one was kind of on board with that and then avatar came around it was like get your theaters ready god damn it we're 3d in um and then all of a sudden it was different i don't really remember a moment where there was an in-between where i would be able to see the the visible difference between these two i mean there was a time because when that initial 3d boom happened the theaters that didn't upgrade and things that have kind of gone missing that i kind of loved, like the dollar theaters or whatnot i remember seeing like prints of movies that would have scratches and then seeing digital prints uh, of the exact same movie sort of around that time period the early the turn of the century if you will (laughs) when sort of things were sort of looking like they were turning in that direction i don't i mean I guess the interesting thing is like now the closest theater that's to me now that I'm sort of back in middle America is a Cinnabar that also does like revivals. So they have to have either a subscription to some sort of company that is now doing digital projection of uh, revival prints or some sort of actual projection theater. But they also have the gimmick of serving you food. So they're allowed that luxury. Well, the thing is that- a Cinnabar? It's like a, it's like a, a, <laughs> like a draft house. house. Oh, sounds awesome. The yeah, it's like really a draft house. They serve you food. The thing that's always going to prevent me from the, from the film nostalgia is what you're talking about, those scratched prints, because that was so fundamental to my experience of going to the movies growing up. It's like you go see something and the later you are, like the more beat up the print looks and like it was just always going to look that way. And the pristineness of digital projection is for the vast majority of people who are going to go pay to see movies in the theater a huge benefit. And for the vast majority of movies that you're seeing, it's going to look better. And I don't, I've never felt convinced otherwise with, you know, the obvious exceptions of things that are better to be seen on film. I don't, I mean, I don't disagree with anything you just said. I just don't really like, and I don't think it's helpful for the younger generations to tie it into nostalgia and to say like, you know, this is, I want it to look this way because this is what it looked like when I was figuring out what movies are and should be. I think that there are... No, I'm saying it's better that... It, that you don't see those scratches anymore. Like it's better for people now because you can go see a movie at any point and it will look good no matter what. But you're you're also saying but you're also saying that it was like your the appeal of it for you is that this is what you loved when you were growing up and what you remember about going to the movies. No, right? I kind of I wish that it had I wish that it had been digital back then. For most of the movies I saw as a kid, it would have been just it would have been better if it had been digital if that had existed. Oh, see, I I feel very differently. I think digital projection is sort of abhorrent i i i am uh you know and i've never been as outspoken and passionate about this as a lot of people that we both know um but what it would i really clear uh it, it sort of comes into focus for me 
was at the Toronto Film Festival, seeing you know all these movies back to back to back uh, in digital projection and, and all from all over the world, all different budgets and scales and and so on, shot in all sorts of different cameras, um, some in film, some on digital, but all projected digitally. And they all look the same. They all have the same glossy feel to them um, that feels unreal in a way divorced from the content of the film. It doesn't really... It, it, all, it all has a sort of plastic feel to it. It doesn't have the malleable texture of film that allows people to, from what I've seen at least, better match the nature of the image to the uh, nature of the content that it's that it's representing. And, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that there isn't any sort of nostalgia factor in there so much as that I don't think it's the most important part of the equation. I do miss seeing cigarette burns and as the reels change and, and going to a movie three weeks after it's come out and having, you know, it looked like the print's been to war and back um, and, and cherishing a pristine, freshly struck film print because you had the passion required to go on opening night rather than, you know, a month into the run. I, I think, but I think all those things are, are valuable. Um, and I also love the idea of seeing a beaten up print and feeling its history. If you're seeing a, a repertory film and you know that this has been a print that's been traveling around the country for 20 years and you, you feel that, you can, I mean, this is, sounds uh, like bad poetry, but you can you, you sort of feel everybody else who's watched the movie and, and the weight that, comes along with that and i think those things are ineffable but also important but can that's not going away because i mean those prints exist are you worried about like the late are you worried about the hobbit battle of the five armies not having a 35 millimeter print so that in 50 years you can show it to your kids and be like back in my day i was watching the battle of the five armies (laughs) my my problems with the hobbits look have a lot more to do with what it was shot on than what it's projected on I, I, that was just an example. Just I'm I'm more curious like, about like why it's so important, and I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here, but like a new 70 millimeter print of Interstellar, for instance. Well, that that is an okay. That's a good point, and it's not. I mean, I don't. The reason that I like like I may not even go see Interstellar in IMAX. I'll see Interstellar in the Warner Brothers screening room, which is like a fucking shoebox, and I'll be fine. But I boohoo. <laughs> Your life's hard. I know, uh, but I just I don't I don't really care. Maybe if it becomes my favorite movie of all time, I will couple go back and then the future lament that I uh, didn't see it on seventy millimeter and IMAX, whatever. But um, I I like what Christopher Nolan's doing because he is making people have this conversation. He's calling attention to the value of seventy uh, of film, uh, especially as an archival medium, because it's so much easier to preserve well than digital. Um, I think these things are important, but as every theater that shows this has to be equipped to do that. And their 35mm prints of these older movies are useless if we don't have theaters that are equipped to show them. And I think anything that keeps the emphasis on, or unemphasis on film projection, you see this with Quentin Tarantino, uh, you know, transforming the new Beverly a theater that he runs in LA into a 35mm only or I guess they probably do 16 millimeter stuff as well, but film only exhibition and showing things from his personal 
archives. Um, you know, I think it, we have to have places that are equipped to screen films because I mean, 35 otherwise then they will be lost. are not going away. Like, there will always be somewhere. Like, the New Beverly, there's always going to be film schools. Like, I mean... The, yeah, but you don't want college, to be we like, had a, like... We had a... We could play nitrate prints at my film school. Like, you can, But you don't want it be to, be to be in that. the position where it's like... You have to go to the New Beverly to see 35 millimeter film. Like it's you don't want to be like get that way because there's going to be DCP prints of Casablanca and all kinds of other. I mean, there stuff. are. Um, yeah, like and... I, I don't see. I don't have a problem with that. Like that makes it more accessible to more people. And then if you want to see it on film, you have well, Quentin Tarantino would tell you that it's like watching television. It's like yeah, watching Quentin television. Would say it's like watching television in public, and he's right. Uh, you know, I. I, it's not a deal breaker for me in the same way that it is for some people I know. Like if, uh, like I will go see a repertory film if it's showing on a 4K, a 4K DCP, and you know I, I won't be my ideal option, but it's not going to stop me if I really want to see the movie um, because the screen, you, the film forum, barely bigger than my television, but still the lights are low and you can't check your phone, and those things go a long way with me. Um, but I, I do think that film is. Uh, is something worth fighting for what's and... funny what's funny about the argument about watching television with a crowd and as if that's a bad thing i'm like i, I that's fine i want to watch a 4k restoration of lawrence of arabia with a giant audience that's fine like it can look like a blu-ray i don't have a theater in my house i want to watch it with a hundred people why not that sounds amazing well, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to argue, anyone here at least is going to argue that, you know, classic films should exist in the format they were intended to. But I think the interesting thing that Katie sort of posited is, is this 70 millimeter thing that Interstellar is doing. Is that going to be able to re-motivate an interest in film? And I think what David was or an saying. interest in movie theaters, period. In movie, in movie theaters, period. And it's as using film uh, sort of like a pro film stance as a way to do that. Something David said about the images sort of being able to portray the intended feeling better on film sort of interested me because sometimes I agree with that and I find myself feeling that way. And sometimes I see myself watching like a modern film and not knowing, you know, how the projection is going. It's probably digital because that's how I'm watching it. But wondering if they're trying to ape a film look and therefore like this is the way it's supposed to look in its digital through mocking film or if they're aping a film look because they didn't have the budget to shoot on film and i'm wondering if there's an entire generation of future people that are not even going to be having that internal monologue with themselves no they won't they'll have well the problem won't make any sense to them the problem is 70 millimeter and it can be used as a marketing tactic if you watch the interstellar trailer they tag it at the end by saying see it in 35 and 70 millimeter early um and you can force people to do that because the release dates are easily marketable to people but that piece of information does not matter to the general public it doesn't almost doesn't matter who you are because it's not part of the conversation in the mainstream i think when avatar came out and 3d was going to be like the future it felt like a world's fair attraction right like oh see avatar the state of the art new film in 3d you've never you know this is not house of wax with vincent price this is like the, the greatest the newest you have to see this and technology junkies can't 
translate 70 millimeter and put it back into the mainstream right it's not going to get the coverage in like people magazine that this amazing film is in 70 well, millimeter but it's not also technology junkies because high frame rate didn't grab the traction like imax 3d did yeah but hobbit no, wasn't I, like I don't think hobbit the, was parading the master in came out in 70 millimeter and nobody you know the people on our twitter feeds cared and would do what they could to see it but it didn't but that was not really a sort of huge a blockbuster that wasn't avatar the biggest film on the entire planet uh that was the master you know a film no one was going to see no matter what format it was in uh but interstellar i mean the nolanites here's what's interesting about nolan being the guy putting 70 millimeter forward he has so many soldiers on the internet so many terrifying human beings who like pressure people into feeling one way and just like he there his fans are cultish and if but they don't care it's I mean, like this good is really to turn them but... into film drones if you're going to keep something alive he's the one to do it. program but your i beasts. don't think i don't think that's what they you know it's hard this is all conjecture and and rather cynical conjecture but my empirical sense is that that's not the takeaway for them they all they can think about is i want to see this movie three days early and when they obsess about it and argue about it uh, for years on end, they're not going to – it's not well, that's, con- that's that's just not so, really going to be part of the conversation. There's nothing telling people what 70 millimeter means, right? They're just marketing Interstellar as 70 millimeter. How do you form education – to give to these people so that people can appreciate film. How now? Like back in my day, if we yeah, wanted that, to that... see an IMAX movie, <laughs> it was about volcanoes or it, it took had... place under the sea you and had we had to go to, go to the, the museum. Yeah. The, prob- the museum or the planetarium and go see those movies because those were like million dollar nature product, nature well, film productions. It, how far does Christopher Nolan want to care? Like, does he want to go to Paramount? And say, you know, for my next movie, you can take $20 million off the budget if you use that $20 million to strike film prints of everything that is shot and and, and offer, you know, first-time directors the ability to strike prints of their films and all of these things. I mean, Right, he, he can't he be the savior of, here. Yeah, I mean, Scorsese's the guy you're looking for who's going to do that. No way! But, Isn't he the one who's fighting really hard for film? He's the one fighting for preservation film more. Right, than, he's uh, a big preservation guy. True. And again... Film is an infinitely better medium for preservation than digital. And so anybody with a vested interest in the history of film should, you know, not ever dismiss film as a as a medium because of that. But uh yeah, he he is seems a little bit more concerned with uh how it pertains to older films. Um and you know, I think yeah, I just I, I don't I don't think that the stunt is gonna have all that much uh, success, but I also do think that you know, even if I don't give a shit about how I see Interstellar, it will be a better experience. And well, I what's think so interesting about the movie nice. is how high tech it is. You know, the whole thing with Interstellar is that they didn't use any green screen, right? So you have these, I believe they used screens like television, pristine, pristine screens to project space and all the objects are going to be looking outside the windows. So you're shooting film of digital projections that they're looking at, which I think is really weird. Um, The shadows are going to look great. I think that's what we can all really appreciate here. The blacks, the blacks are going to be gorgeous. Uh, Unless you have to, (laughs) I'm not talking, (laughs) I was going to make a horrible (laughs) joke, but um, 
What, something about Kodak film being racist? No. Let's not even go there. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad to know that none of us can agree on film versus digital anymore. <clears throat> and that uh, David's going to boycott Interstellar based on what I learned from this conversation. Yeah. David's not really a thrill seeker and has no interest in Interstellar. <laughs> David hates space. It scares him. There's too much of it. I hate movies. I just don't want to... You know. Take that Goddard grin off your face. Tell me, tell me, tell me your problems. I'm here for you. Just try, just try, just try to stay That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday to talk about St. Vincent and Whiplash. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write all across the internet, and I try and put everything on mattpatches.com. This week, I actually uh, got to see Joe Carnahan's stretch, and I talked to him. So I would point you to that on Grantland, because no one's talking about that movie, and no one's seen it. It's going straight to iTunes. Uh, very interesting. And It'll be on iTunes by the time you hear this. Yes. I, uh, same with our podcast. <laughs> That's sad. Uh, and remember that we, Fighting in the War Room, have a website fightingintheworld.com where we put all the episodes you can comment you can share you can leave angry messages you can leave kind words anything you want fightingintheworld.com I'm David Ehrlich I'm the editor at large of Little White Lies magazine uh, you can also find me writing at the Dissolve AV Club and Complex and uh, you can find all of us together on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. I write for Forbes and Latino Review about Star Wars and mega franchises and Marvel and things. You can find all that stuff at I Love Dave Gonzalez, D A V G O N Z A L E S dot com. And uh, also this week, why not go check out JustTheGosling.com? It's some Vimeo <laughs> videos I put together of just Ryan Gosling's preteen horror career on television. It's a it's a good good uh, you know 15 minutes of your time. I hope you uh, contact R.L. Stein when your Goosebumps phase is over and then uh, tell him about what you've been up to. Come on the podcast, R.L. Stein. Oh, my God. We'll start now. Starting right now, we have to ask him. But by the time the movie comes out, like, by the time the movie comes out, he'll have to. Everyone can Come on, R.L. Stein. He's very accessible. Yeah, everybody tweeted R.L. Stein. He's got to come on our podcast. We got a lot of time before that movie comes out. Okay. Uh, what, I'm Katie Rich. When does that dumb movie come out? Like I February, know. I think. After we finish this episode. Yeah. I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Twitter is also where you can find all of us at F-I-T-W-R, which is also the place you can answer this week's lightning round question, which is... In honor of Robert Duvall in The Judge, which living legend are you hoping can still pull one last great performance? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday.